You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning. Our sermon text today comes from Acts 9, 31 to the end of the chapter. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and increased in numbers. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works according to works and acts of charity. About that time she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard what Peter heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, Don't delay in coming to us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the windows, all the widows <laughs> approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter s- sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning towards the body said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and saw Peter and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a a leather tanner. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Chad, the one who does not have himself together this morning, apparently. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here and very, very grateful to be with you this morning. Um, We are in Acts. If you have your Bibles with you, we encourage you to turn to chapter 9 to follow along. There is a little bit of um, where we're going to be referencing and some other stories as well for context and for us to appreciate what the author is doing here in this passage because I think it's important, it's helpful, and it's intentional. We're coming off of last week where we've continued in Acts from the conversion of Saul, who you may be familiar with as Paul, the guy who wrote many of the letters that make up a majority of our New Testament. And this dramatic experience in which Saul is on the road to Damascus, he sees a great light, he falls on his knees, Jesus uh, impacts his life and says, by the way, I'm alive and you're persecuting me. And then we move forward through the story, and Saul's eyes are blinded until until someone lays their hands on him. Ananias is his name, a disciple, prays for him, and the Spirit falls on Saul to where his, as it says, scales fall off his eyes. So we see this traumatic conversion of Saul coming from complete enemy of God. He is actually on the way to Damascus to capture, prison, probably kill if he has to, Christians or followers of the way, as they referred to them. And so he's on this mission. Christ intersects him. 
completely changes his life, and he becomes this super Christian with the cape flying behind him because he is just winning the world. And if we look at this story and we look at this context, it could be, hopefully you didn't get that from last week, that we may be a little, um, it might be a little bit imposing, if you will. Like, is that what it looks like to be a missionary? Do I have to get myself all together? Do I have to have dramatic Damascus experience? You have no idea all the problems I have in my life. God is working in incredible ways in me. There's no way I should be teaching anybody or talking to anybody about him because I don't have myself together. If that sounds like a familiar story for you as a believer, you're not alone. If you're an unbeliever and you're under the impression that that people who follow Jesus think they are living just perfectly, and maybe some people you've met have acted like it, I don't want to discount that, please understand that hopefully no one who is a member of this church is under that impression. Because I'm not. We don't have it all together. And what I love about the, the, what really is beautiful storyline and narrative of, of the story coming through is that as we've moved from Saul and this dramatic conversion experience, that, that God doesn't leave you in a place where you're seeing this and thinking, wow, I don't think I have a story like that. I think last week I even talked about the fact that I said, I really want my kids to have a, a boring testimony. Like they just you know, I mean, my, my parents love Jesus. I went to church. He's awesome. And I'm now like preaching and I'm a missionary, you know, whatever. I, they don't have to fall into the ditch to glorify and honor God with their life. And so what I appreciate is that we then move to a portion of the story that was just read to you where Peter is now doing miracles and he's a familiar character in the gospels in Jesus's life. He's a familiar character that's been following him. He's not presented as a perfect character, but Let's just say that when it came to the beginning of Acts and the gospel started going forth, he was our first mega pastor preacher. He jumps up mega evangelist, he preaches the gospel, and it says 3,000 come to faith. I mean, that's a good weekend at a revival. Now, we know that God's the one doing the work, and we see in this that, that he's moving forward and doing some amazing miracles that are like, I'm not healing people. And I'm not encouraging this morning, like, hey, please find a person, a paralytic, you can tell to get up and heal. This is not where we're going with this. But we do get to see, if we read this story in context, what, there's something even being communicated about Peter, and that Jesus is working through Peter, and that Jesus is also working on Peter. Because the story, really, honestly, we could read this passage from chapter 9 on through 10 because there is a complete movement in which he is trying to help Peter understand something that he's not quite got right yet. Can you relate to that? Is there something in your heart that you can feel God's working on in you? Or maybe you haven't come to that place and maybe you don't even realize that he's working on because I don't think Peter's under this impression yet. And so I want to draw out and show you the ways in which we can see Jesus moving Peter and working him towards something. But then next week, we actually have Micah going to preach for us from uh, the story of Cornelius, in which he begins to reveal something even more to Peter. But first, when we start, I want to read through the passages and kind of walk through what's going on in these healings. And before we do that, let's go ahead and pray that the Spirit would be with us and lead us in that. Father, thank you in your kindness and grace that we get to be here. Lord, let us never forget that it's by prayer and by your power that anything changes. 
Lord, be with us this morning. Let your spirit fill us, teach us, guide us into all truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read through these texts starting in verse, well, what 31 is the beginning of where we began. I'm sorry, the beginning of where we began. English is not my first language, apparently. But in verse 31, we come off of Saul beginning to preach in which we read that so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Saul was coming to bring persecution. He's changed and there's peace. Right? They are strengthened. The church is strengthened. What are they doing? They're living in the fear of the Lord and they're encouraged by the Holy Spirit and they're increasing in numbers. And now we zoom in tight to a story of Peter in verse 32. So let's read what's going on with Peter. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in uh, Lydda or Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. So Peter's doing some traveling evangelist type thing. He's going throughout the area and he's coming to a place where he's actually visiting with some saints. He's in the church. He's coming to meet the people there and he's meeting with some saints and he finds a man named Aeneas as we just read. So we assume and we, uh, when we look at this, Aeneas is also one of the members of the saints because it says that's who he's visiting with. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. And make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So in this particular story, we see Peter has come to the space. He finds some saints. He finds one of them. For some reason, he's decided he's inspired with Aeneas. I'm going to go ahead and heal you. And I'm going to do it now. Get up, make your bed. And he's healed. And everybody starts hearing about it. And everybody starts coming to the Lord. Now the second story, Acts 9, 36-43 in Joppa. There was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Now, in this particular case, we want to appreciate the fact that uh, Tabitha is actually what's called an uh, uh, <laughs> Aramaic name. I was going to lose that word, too. An Aramaic name, and it's translated here Dorcas. That's Luke, who's the author here, giving us her Greek version of the name. It's almost like letting you know, by the way, we translate that Dorcas, for those who are reading this in Greek. Uh, the, the both terms mean gazelle, not not um, Tom Brady's wife, because I mispronounced that. It's actually Giselle, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Now you screwed that up, and he pointed it out for me. It's official. <laughs> but in this particular case, uh, Dorcas and Tabitha both mean Gazelle, and Luke's trying to provide some context. So he says, she was always doing good works and acts of charity. This is a woman who is giving herself over to the church and serving people. About that time, she became sick, and she died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. And since little was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him to urge them, don't delay in coming with us. So they hear Peter's nearby. It's one of the original, the apostles that have been following Jesus and they're hearing that he, you know, there's miracles in, in his work. Come over here. We've got a loved saint who has been serving the church and she's passed away. Verse 39, Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. All the window, uh, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So when Peter got there, they moved him and took him up to the upper room. This is a little bit interesting. They've already washed and prepared her body, but you don't normally store the dead upstairs because the plans aren't to keep them in the house. Uh, they are going to be buried. They're going to be taken out. So there's at least maybe some indication that they think that something's going to happen. So they put him up there and prepared for Peter. Come on, she's upstairs. Bring her to life for us. 
when the widows came in there to approach him, what that tells us about Dorcas, as we've already discussed a little bit, is that, I mean, she was a very vital part of, of the community that's in this area, in this church. She is giving of herself, and it says even the robes and the clothes that she had made for the widows, it, it's indicating in the way that it's written that they're wearing them. Like, check out what this stuff she, she made for us. This is, she clothed us. She kept us warm. She helped us. She served us. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, he prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and the widows. He presented her alive. And this became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. So that's the entirety of the story. We see him healing Dorcas, or Tabitha. We see that in healing, both of these healings, that many people are coming to the Lord as a result. And Peter is continuing to walk in faith. And maybe you're thinking here, great message. I'm going to go try to heal some people. Is that what's in the back of your head? Honestly, can I just say that unjokingly, there are people in ministries that believe that's what we should take from this, that we should be healing like Peter, that our expectation should be to walk around. There's a point where Peter's walking by and his shadow casting on people is literally healing people. And that's what we should just expect. And what I don't want to say is that we should expect that God could not do that. But I do want to mention that that's not prescriptive for us. That, that it means you're of lack of faith because you aren't, you aren't seeing that. Because the error we can fall into as we look at this is believe that there's some form of ministry that we need to have enough faith to reach. Or that we need to clean ourselves up to be some kind of a superhuman or super saint, if you will, before we can go on some radical mission for the Lord. And it, that is not the same. God can do amazing things no matter where you are in your walk, but he is also continuing to work on you during your walk. And the thing we want to remember is that while God is doing miraculous things through Peter, what these stories are showing us is that he is still doing miraculous works in Peter. Even the fact that we move to a point where this is the first time we see miracles being happening in the body. These are saints that it's happening to. As if to say, yes, I have transformed and done miracles out here in the space of unbelievers, but I'm also doing something in the church too. And so when we look at this, we want to remember Jesus continues to do his miraculous work and bring new life in us as well as through us as we're imperfect people. So first let's look at how is it clear in this passage that Jesus is working through Peter? Well, there's actually some other subtle things in here that point to that. Look again at verse 32 through 43. When Peter goes into this place and he goes and sees uh, Aeneas, he tells him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Is that what we have up on here? Okay. No, I'm sorry. I take that back. In order for us to look at these together, let's look in first on how Peter's ministry is continuing Jesus' work. That's the first thing. These two stories are parallel to a couple of accounts of Jesus' miracles. Actually, they're so close, especially the second one, that some critics would say that these are just duplicates. That honestly, that the story here is just, okay, they heard a good, a good miracle happening, and they applied it to Jesus, and then they applied it to Peter. Okay, I would argue it doesn't have to be that. It's actually interesting when you look at it. If it's too close, it's a copy. If it's not close enough, it's a contradiction. That's a whole other conversation. 
We can't win in some scripture because people are going to find something in a problem. In this particular case, Luke is the one pinning both of them. And Luke, by the way, is a very educated Greek. He's presented to us as a doctor. He's someone who's traveled with Paul. He's writing an account. And actually, most people would even agree, no matter what they believe about what the Bible is, that the Greek he's writing in is advanced, technical, and quality. He's an educated guy. So much so that if you have an ancient Greek on the street, hand him an Old Testament, it'd be like a Greek novel. Greek literature, it fits right in. He's familiar with that. So what I would suggest is, rather than saying these are the same story and being duplicated, Luke, as inspired by God, is trying to demonstrate for us something about Peter's ministry. He's trying to remind us to look back at what Jesus said and then look at what Peter's doing and recognizing that Peter's continuing the same work, that Jesus is working through Peter. So we look at the account in Luke, which is the Gospel of Luke, in which it describes uh, this same thing happening to Jesus. Jesus walks in uh, to a place. He is teaching. He is out teaching a crowd. The Pharisees are there. And there's a man who's a paralytic on a stretcher. You may have heard this story. The paralytic is lowered down through the roof because his friends can't find any way to Jesus. They pull the roof apart. They open it up. They drop their buddy in. And Jesus sees this man. And he tells him this, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, that doesn't set well with the Pharisees. The Pharisees look and say, who is this is forgiving sins? So Jesus hears their thoughts. He perceives their thoughts. He knows what they're, they're, the way they're considering this. He says, why are you thinking in your hearts these things? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. That phrase, get up, it's a paralyzed man, get up, take your stretcher, go home. And then we look back at the message in the story of Aeneas with Peter. In Acts, Peter comes and finds a paralyzed man. He's not lowered through a roof, but the way he speaks to him is this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. He gets up and he's healed. They're intentionally drawing our attention to those healings. We can also see it even more explicitly in Dorcas, in the story of Jairus' daughter. If we look at Luke chapter 8, there's an account where a man who is a leader of the synagogue comes to Jesus. He hears him. He hears he's in the town. He finds out he's there, and he comes to plead with him, come to my house and heal my daughter. Well, while he's gone, his daughter passes away. She dies because Jesus is not quite there yet. So he tells, Jesus responds to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe, and she'll be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's mother, father and mother. Note that Peter is one of the very few people that get to see this account firsthand. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. Everyone is meeting him at the door crying and mourning over this loss and this death. So they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. Jesus took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded and instructed to tell no one. So we have the account of Jairus' daughter. There's a crowd at the house. Jairus is afraid for his daughter, finds out Jesus is in the area, comes and gets Jesus, brings him to his house. Jesus comes in. The crowd meets him at the door wailing. He says, get out of the way. I'm going to go talk to the girl. Says, child, get up, and she's healed. Now look back at Dorcas. There's a woman named Tabitha who is Dorcas. She's always doing good. In verse 38, 
Since Stiletto was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to, ur- uh, to him to urge him, don't delay in coming with us, just like Jesus. Hey, we heard Peter's here. Bring him. Peter gets to the house, and what happens when he arrives? They lead him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approach him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes. They meet him at the door, mourning and crying. The house is full. In verse 40, Peter sent them all out, like Jesus. And he kneels down and prays, turning towards the body, and says, Tabitha, get up. She opens her eyes, and she's healed. Now, now you don't see it directly in these two languages, but it's intentional on Luke's part. Because in the Aramaic, the exact same thing that Jesus said was, little girl, get up, which is Talitha, get up. Talitha kumi, T-A-L-I-T-H-A. Peter comes in, and remember Luke pointed out her name's Dorcas. And then again, in verse 39, he uses her name Dorcas. But when he quotes Peter, he says, Tabitha kumi. So in the Aramaic church, they knew what he was talking about. That Peter was carrying on Jesus' ministry. That Peter was still working in the power of Christ. That just like he said, Talitha, get up, Peter said, Tabitha, get up. And Peter was working and continuing the work that Christ prepared for him. That's the same thing we do. Anything we do is only a continuation of Christ's work that he's wanting to reach the nations with the gospel and giving that direction to his disciples is exactly what passes on to us as his children. As followers of Christ, we follow his mission. And that's what Peter's doing here. We also see that Peter is working through, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is working through Peter because it's also made clear that Peter's ministry is dependent on Jesus' work. Look at, again, Because not only are the similarities important in the two stories, but the differences tell us something about the two stories. The intentional differences. See, while in uh, with the paralyzed man, Jesus says this, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. But Peter in the Acts story says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Peter knows where the power is coming from. I'm not telling you this. Peter's telling you this. Or, or Jesus is telling you this, and he's healing you. And so Jesus spoke in his own power. Peter speaks in Jesus' power when he raises the paralyzed man. Now look again at the story with Dorcas and with Jairus' daughter. When he enters the house at Jairus' daughter, it's looking at verse 30, uh, starting in 54 of chapter 8 with Luke. It says, Jesus, he took her by the hand first and calls out child get up her spirit returned she got up at once then when you look at peter's account he comes in the room he doesn't take her by the hand it says he first kneels down and he prays jesus comes in grabs her hand and says get up because where's the power coming from from him peter comes in and says father the power is all in you raise this girl then he looks at her It says, Tabitha, get up. After Jesus heals her, it then says, she opened her eyes, saw Peter, and set up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Because it wasn't Peter doing the work. It wasn't Peter's power. It wasn't in Peter's hand. It was in Christ's hand. Not only do we see that 
Peter's work is continuing Jesus' ministry. Peter's ministry is continuing the work. Peter's ministry is dependent on Jesus' work, but Peter's ministry is also confirmed by Jesus' work. Look what happens after each healing. In In Ananias, we see that afterwards he gets up and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. What are they turning to? They're turning to the Lord. In the story of Dorcas, at the very end it tells us that everything that happened became known throughout Joppa, and many believed the Lord. So Peter's ministry is pointing to who? The Lord. It's continuing Jesus' work, it's dependent on his power, and it is pointing people to him. This is a super important thing for us to differentiate. Because if you see anyone working in power, I would never discount that somebody's doing something. They could be. They might be. Who knows? Spirits at work, man. They do dark things. Evil gonna evil. But what's the test? It tells us. In this case, everyone's turning to the Lord. Deuteronomy 13 tells us explicitly, if a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder, he promised, does come about. Like, he's saying, if it happens. But he also says, let's follow other gods, which you have not known, and let's worship them. Do not listen to what that prophet's words or or to that dreamer. Don't listen. This is an important test for us because we might see people who say they're moving in power. There's people doing crazy stuff, at least saying they are, walking around the street making legs get longer. I don't know what's going on. They do things like that. I'm serious. You just don't Google search it. It's a whole rabbit hole. Don't go down YouTube. But the test we're given here is who are they glorifying? Is it for that person's glory? I mean, they're not outrightly saying some other God. But in some cases, it's for your own personal glory. Like promises of, of, of health, wealth, riches. People were coming to find power because they want to be blessed in abundance financially. America, we're, we're ripe for that. In this particular case, we don't see anything but Peter's ministry pointing to Jesus. So Jesus is confirming the work that, Jesus is, that Peter is doing. And Peter later also reiterates the fact that there will be false prophets when he pins in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, that there were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They'll bring in destructive heresies, and what will they do? Even denying the master who bought them. And will bring swift destruction on themselves. So we not f- need to fear those other powers or strengths or whatever anybody's doing. They bring their own destruction. But we do need to be wise. And we do need to recognize that even as Peter is being worked through in this ministry, his ministry is constantly pointing to Christ. So here's the part that I want us to move to. Not only is Jesus working through Peter, but how is it in this text we can see that Jesus is also working in Peter? See, Peter in particular, when we see this passage, is on a path, if you will. He's been moving away from uh, Jerusalem and moving out to the coastland. This particular area is actually near Philistine territory. It's on the coast. Uh, There's a lot of Gentiles in the area. We even saw that there were Greek widows who were there coming forward and talking to uh, Peter about what Dorcas was doing for them. Okay? But in this particular case, we also have to recognize that Um, 
Peter, even though he is powerful and God is working through him, he's imperfect. I mean, the reason I would say that, and hopefully be encouraged, <laughs> you'd be encouraged by this, is that the Bible doesn't hide its hero's shortcomings. In, in no uncertain terms, he's human. He's a human who is serving a perfect master, but he is an imperfect human. In the beginning of Scripture, we see that men and women are created in the image of God. That's the way we're described. But very shortly after that, the image bearers are broken. Like a mirror that's shattered. It reflects a little bit. You can see remnants of reflection, but it's not what it used to be. I appreciate what Alistair Begg tries to point to this, where he talks about a story of people traveling in Scotland. And he says, if you travel through Scotland, you might have noted or will note that uh, when you go beyond Perth and up into the highlands of Scotland, there very quickly become on castles which are no longer inhabited. And when you look at them often in the evening sunlight, it's not difficult to recognize that these must have been at one time magnificent places. The structure speaks to that, and although now there are no windows, there's no fabric there, there's no, inhabiting, no one inhabiting them, or so it seems. If you do what your art teacher encouraged you to do when you were doing art appreciation, namely stand back far enough and squeeze your eyes, you can begin to see that even in their ruined condition, there is a splendor about these edifices that speak to their former glory. And so while we would have to conclude that what we're looking at are ruins, Nevertheless, in one sense, they're glorious ruins. See, even though we are broken by sin and our image is shattered, there is a measure of glory, even in unbelievers. Just We see evidences of God's character and image and the way that they seek justice and the way that they want to pursue those kind of realities in life, that they have mercy that there's affection and love and kindness and relationships, and those are, those are prioritized and appreciated. Those are all things that come from our image, of, uh, that our image from God. But even in that, we are broken. In Christ, we are being restored. See, that message that we talked about earlier, where we see Saul, who has been completely transformed by his experience with Jesus, in terms of theological Words, and I'm going to use some big words. I hate using these things all the time, but I want to give us some context. When we talk about salvation, there's, a, there's a, a reference to justification, meaning being right before God, and sanctification, being changed to look more like God, and glorification, where we are in perfect glory before God. So if you think of in these terms, when Paul met Christ, he is now saved and right and righteous before God in Christ. But as we see Peter, and even Paul later, who is imperfect, we see Christ being formed in Peter. So that now that we are in Christ before God, we are now being changed to look more like Christ in this world. So what's the story of Peter? Well, John tells us, like Peter, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So for the case of what we're talking about, John would argue that for you who believe you're in Christ, you still have sin in your life. 
And in your life, as you confess your sin, that God is faithful to forgive that sin. Paul talks about this in Romans when he talks about the fact that even as we sin, that there's more opportunity for grace, so that grace abounds, if you will, that wherever sin is, there is even more grace of Christ. So when we believe in him, we know that God's grace is sufficient to cover that sin. So maybe you ask this, okay, cool, all right, well, if, if, if I can sin and then God's going to forgive it, well, then why don't I just go ahead and, I mean, what's it matter? I just live my life the way I want. I'm under Christ, and then he covers it, right? Is that the argument? Paul anticipates that because in Romans chapter 6, he says this, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who are died to sin still live in it? So what I want us to understand as we look at Peter, even though you're a broken image bearer, you have the Spirit of God in you. And there is a significant difference between being imperfect versus being unrepentant. What I mean by being imperfect is that there is a repentance in which we are turned towards Christ and we are being made more like him. And being unrepentant is I don't care about where I live and how I am and I'm just going to follow after my own desires. Martin Luther in his great 95 thesis he writes in the very first one he says when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So that every day, day by day even as we look at Peter's life and he is being changed that we would anticipate that God is continuing to work and change in us. That the most significant difference between being a sinful, imperfect person who is in Christ and being someone who is in unrepentant is the difference in the direction you're looking. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says when he talks about running the race of life. He says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. That our hope is in him. That every day, even though as we fail, as we stumble, as we walk imperfectly, that Christ is still working in you and you can trust with faith that he is forgiving you and he is changing you to look more like him. So we see that in this passage with Peter that uh, um, Jesus is working through, or we know as, as far as from Scripture, I apologize, not just this passage, but through Scripture, that Jesus works uh, through imperfect people. But he also works through imperfect obedience. See, Peter is in this situation where we don't, may not appreciate. He is batting, battling through a history of bias while still following the Spirit. And what I mean by that is Peter came from a lineage of prejudice. Clear back to Abraham. Actually, if you read the story of Jonah, the really cool story about a fish swallowing a dude and spitting him up on dry land. Everybody's got that in their kids, like nursery uh, it's, it's church, right? You know, put the Jonah in the whale. Jonah is the most reluctant prophet. Like, you read this story, he does not want to go to Nineveh, and he exemplifies the kind of hatred that Israelites had for others. He was angry with God even at the end of the story, if you read chapter 4, when the Ninevites repented because now God couldn't judge him. Jewish midwives during Peter's time were forbidden to help Gentile women in labor. They were told they couldn't help them. You know why? Because that would propagate Gentiles. Nah, let them figure it out. And here's the, here's the rub for Peter. Before Jesus left, he said, go therefore and make disciples of Jews. 
of all nations. In Acts 1.8, he told his disciples, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's not, it is not by accident the beginning of this passage in 31 said that they have been in Judea and in Samaria. They haven't been to the ends of the earth yet. See, Christianity at this point is still a Jewish religion. And in this story, what you might not recognize is God is leading Peter into Gentile areas with his vision coming in the next chapter with Cornelius. And and then we also see that later, Peter is still wrestling with a little bit of this bias against Gentiles. And by the way, Gentiles, if I'm on the same page here, are everyone other than Jews. I don't think I would get that description then. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul actually references a confrontation he has with Peter where he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is what he was doing. He regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when those men, being Jewish people, people who are the, what they called the circumcision party, that's a party I don't want to go to. Um, sorry. <laughs> when they came... He withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. And then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy. It's like Peter is still wrestling with this. Like he's grown up through a period of time. Christ saves him, and yet there's still in his heart this problem where he's not quite ready to bring the gospel to the Gentiles because he's not sure if that's the way he needs to go because, I mean, it's Gentiles. But here's the important thing to remember. As Peter is obeying the Spirit's leading, it's it's messy. It's not perfect. God's preparing to reveal more to him about different areas of his life and his understanding where he needs to grow. But all along, Peter is obeying to the best of his ability, and he's growing and learning. I think there can be a fear of stepping out and trying something because you just not you might think you're not going to make the right decision. Like like maybe I'm not at the right place that I need to go out and make this mission trip or take this journey or go out in this space or go overseas. Yeah, I feel God might be leading that direction, but I'm not there yet. And what I want to encourage you on this is God will still be working in you to change you as he works through you and your obedience. That as you pursue obedience and faith, that Jesus is faithful to work in you to make him more like him. So Paul confronts Peter. Peter is still walking this path closer to where the Gentiles are. And he ends up at the very end of this passage in a place called Simon the Tanners. Which, by the way, Tanners were unclean. This is giving us a hint that in some respects, Peter is getting himself a little more comfortable because he sees the Spirit working. I don't understand. But I also know Simon's this faithful guy who's willing to host me in his home and willing to have people visit and hear the gospel. Because later in chapter 10, people are visiting him at Simon the Tanner's and hearing the good news. So Peter is being worked on, and he is moving towards what we're going to read in the next chapters. But what I want us to absolutely understand is that in all of this that what Jesus is 
ultimate work, even as he's working through Peter, as he's working in Peter, as he's working through you, and as he's working in you and I. That his ultimate goal in Jesus' work is to bring new and eternal life. That's what it is. Like he is looking to not only transform you and make you his like Saul, but to change you and give you life to make you more like him. Aeneas was healed and Dorcas was raised physically, but new life in Christ is eternal. That's why we don't have to worship at the foot of the idea that God's going to raise us all from the dead, like tomorrow. Like, like you die and you're just coming back like a superhero that never really dies, like a Marvel series where they, the death doesn't matter and you're going to see him again later in the second movie. Okay, in this case, we do come to an end. But the truth is, Christ is leading us beyond that. He tells the disciples in John 10 that I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. To the max. I mean, that's like, he's saying life to the max. Y'all just, y'all got your little thing. You think you got a life. You think you're uh, following after joy. I want to show you what life is. In John 17, he says more specifically what that life is. He's praying to his father. He's praying for his disciples. And he tells, he tells his father, you gave me authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone that you've given to him. So if Jesus is going to give eternal life, what is it? Well, guess what? It's not actually just living forever. That's what we want to look at it as, right? Like eternal life is just like, I'm just going to be here. I'm just going to be floating around. I'm just, that's just me living, never dying. Jesus says that eternal life is this, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus is working through Peter, but he's also trying to bring Peter into more life, to see that the gospel is not constrained to some random group that, that the world has told him is the right ones. But there's a whole nation out there that the gospel is to come to, that he wants to reach the world and make them all part of the family of God. And that doesn't have to be specifically the way he works in you. You might not have that presupposition. Maybe you have somebody you have a hard time thinking they really deserve. Maybe you're like Jonah. Don't save them. But even more than that, what I want to encourage you in this is that as you are faithfully obedient and following after Christ, that you seek to serve him and him work through you, that you can be confident that Christ is going to lead you into more life as he works in you. Until can I, can I be really, really honest with you? It hurts sometimes. Sometimes the work hurts. I, like, I'm just telling you. I, my wife loves this kind of work when she was doing more physical therapy. It's called wound care. It, it, there's a de debrisment where you have to get in there and clean out, like, major wounds. And for some reason, she just loves the progress. Like, the fact of seeing the healing and the progress, she loves that. Other people... You know, it's like watching a surgical channel, and you're like, you know what I'm saying? Just, okay. My point I'm getting to is this. It's not comfortable when, she's, when they're doing the debrisment. Like, they're digging in and cleaning. I mean, can you imagine having a huge, terrible gash on your leg, and they're having to scrub it? But it's getting out all the, all the infection. It's getting all the dirt. 
It's getting all the stuff that honestly will keep you from having to amputate your leg possibly. Elsewhere in scripture, it talks about the vine and the branches and the vine dresser. And if you're a plant, the idea of getting limbs cut off don't sound like really a comfortable event. But it says that the father does that because it helps the plant grow and bear more fruit. So, so you and I, as, as we walk through this Christian life, brothers and sisters, it is not an evidence of God's blessing that things are just peachy, keen, and good, and fine. If your life is just streamlined and easy, I honestly would be a little more nervous. Because that tells me there's no reason the enemy feels like attacking you. There's no, there's no target on your back. And you have gotten into a really scary coast of being comfortable with whatever sin you have in your life. This is like the worst encouraging pep talk ever. I've heard people who want to come to Christ, and usually I just feel inspired to tell them, by the way, yes, Jesus is awesome. This is going to be hard. Um, that's what the community's for. Because we even look at Peter, and he's in the church, and he's with brothers and sisters. And it's not just changing him alone. He's got Paul coming up and yelling at him for good reason. And so that as Jesus works through us, he's, by God's grace, going to work in us because we want to look more like him. And Peter came to that realization or at least began to develop that realization because we actually see him pin something that captures what Christ is trying to teach him in 1 Peter 2. When he refers to all people in the church, he uses language that is usually reserved for just the nation of Israel, for Jewish people. And he says this in verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And why has he done this? Why has he called all people together in one family? so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one who has taken the scales off your eyes like Saul. The one that has revealed all truth and revealed himself to you and brought you out of that darkness into light. And now we follow after that God. Once you were not a people, you were a bunch of Jews and Gentiles, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. I just pray he changes us. I pray that he continues to work in us, both as a church and in you. And if you do not know this God that has opened up the eyes of so many and is this marvelous light we're talking about, I will tell you, it's going to be tough, but he's worth it. And he changes you to give you new life. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the grace that you show your children, that you are willing to put the work in us, that you don't give up on your people, even though there's so much work for us to do, that there's so much that we need to change for us to really be more like Jesus. God, don't allow us to coast. Don't allow us to get into a groove. Don't allow us to believe for one moment that this Christian life is merely comfortable, that you're looking to give us comfort in this world because 
God, you mean to do so much more than just making sure we have a nice TV, a nice house, a meal on our, t- on our table, friends that we enjoy, family that we get along with. God, these are all blessings, but it's not the end. I thank you for the way you bless us in all those ways. Always remind us every day that those blessings, just like Peter with the church, the blessings of the saints that he was able to serve and be a part of, God, those blessings are there to also encourage us and remind us of the, of the gift giver. And Lord, for us to steward all those things for the ministry of the church, for us to continue to let, um, allow you to work through us to do ministry like we see Peter doing ministry, serving, loving others, carrying the gospel to where it's not, speaking to our neighbors at work, or our, our, our co-workers at work, our neighbors around our homes. God, change us to be more like him. And we ask all this in Christ's name.